the old pilot's plane tales, turning oceans into ponds. Every day, around 2,500 aircraft make the journey across the Atlantic Ocean from the Americas to Europe or back again. In 2015, 44 million transatlantic passenger seats were offered to let people safely complete a flight that was, only 90 years ago, considered impossible. They watch the latest movies or beaver away at their laptops, perhaps unaware that beneath them, under the waves, lie the airmen that tried and failed before them. When we think of the first transatlantic flight, a name that often springs to mind is that of Charles Lindbergh, but, as we will discover, he was far from the first. The idea of linking the two land masses of America and Europe by air first came with the advent of the balloon. In 1859, John Wise, perhaps unwisely, built an enormous balloon named Atlantic. On his crossing attempt, the flight lasted less than a day when he crash-landed in Henderson, New York. It was after the First World War when advances in flight made the possibility of a successful crossing realistic. In 1913, the Daily Mail newspaper offered a prize of £10,000 sterling which is well over $1 million in today's money, to the aviator who shall first cross the Atlantic in an aeroplane in flight from any point in the United States of America, Canada or Newfoundland, and any point in Great Britain or Ireland in 72 continuous hours. It was the Curtis Aircraft and Motor Company who first achieved a crossing of sorts, but this was not a serious attempt to win the Daily Mail prize, as it was a long way from adhering to the rules of the competition. Glenn Curtis had combined his skills with those of the English naval officer John Port. The 1914 flying boat America that they produced was further modified by Port into the Felixstowe flying boat, which had more powerful engines, a longer range, a better hull and improved handling. He shared his improvements with Curtis, who built the aircraft under licence and then sold them to the US government. In May 1919, the US Navy started a transatlantic expedition, using these aircraft as a demonstration of its capabilities. Initially, three aircraft, NC-1, NC-3 and NC-4, set off from Naval Air Station Rockaway in Queens. NC-2 had already been cannibalised for spares before they even left New York, on their journey to Trepassey, Newfoundland. There they met their seaplane tender, the USS Aroostook, which prepared them for their transatlantic flight, before setting sail for England to meet them on the completion of their journey. Across the Atlantic, at about 50-mile intervals, stretching all the way to the Azores, were 22 naval ships, mainly destroyers, 
which provided navigation assistance by shining searchlights into the sky and firing bright star shells. The three aircraft departed, and after a flight of over 15 hours, NC-4 arrived amongst the islands of the Azores. On the way, both NC-1 and 3 were forced to land on the water because of poor visibility and mechanical problems. NC-1 was damaged when it landed and eventually it sank. NC-3 could not get airborne again and taxied 200 miles across the open ocean to join NC-4 at the midway point. A few days later, NC-4 started the leg to Lisbon, but turned back with mechanical problems. After a long wait for spares, it tried again, and after overflying another chain of warships laid out along its route, it successfully landed in Lisbon Harbour. On the 31st of May, the NC-4 and its crew, Reed, Hinton, Stone, Bress, Rhodes and Rod, arrived in London, having taken 23 days to get from Newfoundland to London. E. H. Howard should have been amongst them, but he was replaced, having lost his hand to a running propeller. This was the first aircraft of any kind to cross the Atlantic, and, since it started its journey in Massachusetts, it also became the first to fly from the mainland of the United States to mainland Europe. This enormous undertaking, which involved four aircraft and a total of 53 US warships, was, however, soon to be eclipsed by two men in an old World War I bomber. To call the Vickers Vimy an old bomber is a little unfair, as it was produced quite late in the war and never actually saw combat. What's more, for its time, it was a very capable machine. An RFC pilot during the war, Alcock was a prisoner when the engines of his Handley Page bomber failed, and during his time of incarceration, he resolved to attempt to win the Daily Mail prize. Vickers were considering entering a Vimy into the competition, and when Alcock approached them as a pilot, they took him on. Soon after, Brown, another downed RSC pilot who had studied long-range navigation, joined the team. They set to modifying an aircraft, replacing the bomb racks with extra fuel tanks, before breaking it down to be shipped to St. John's, Newfoundland. Other teams had tried and failed, including Sopwith, with their aircraft, the Sopwith Atlantic, which crashed during the crossing when their engine overheated. When Alcock and Brown arrived, they discovered that they weren't the only team at St. John's. Admiral Mark Kerr was there with Handley Page, who were in the final stages of testing their machine. Kerr was determined not to take off until the aircraft was in perfect condition, so the Vickers boys quickly assembled their twin-engine biplane, and at 1.45pm on the 14th of June 1919, whilst Handley Page were conducting yet another test, they took off. With their modified Rolls-Royce Eagle 360 horsepower engines straining under the weight, they struggled to get airborne from the rough field, barely missing the treetops. 
Setting course, they left the land behind them, and soon problems began to beset their flight. Their wind-powered generator failed, depriving them of their radio, their intercom, and the heating for their primitive open cockpit. Shortly afterwards, an exhaust pipe burst, creating a dreadfully loud bellowing noise, which made conversation all but impossible. By 5pm, they had entered thick fog, which gave them two major problems. Without gyroscopic instruments, they had no way of telling which way was up, and it was impossible for Brown to use his sextant for navigation. Twice, Alcock entered spiral descents, which nearly ended up in the drink, and he struggled to regain control, fighting the aircraft's nose-heavy trim. It was become increasingly hard to keep the nose up, as the fuel was consumed since the trimmer had failed some time previously, and Alcock had to continually pull against the Vimy's tendency to dive into the water. Just after midnight, Brown got a glimpse of some stars and was able to confirm that they were on course. The night was long and cold for them, particularly as their electrically heated suits had failed and all they had was their coffee, spiked with whiskey, for comfort. Early in the morning they flew into a snowstorm and soon they were drenched and freezing, whilst their instruments iced up. Eventually the ice covered the air intake of one of the engines. Alcock decided to shut the engine down before the misfiring could destroy it. Descending into warmer air, the duo hoped the ice would melt before they hit the water. At around 500 feet, they broke into clear air and were able to restart the engine. Not long after sunrise, the Irish coast came into view and with their hearts full of cheer, they circled looking for a good landing place. The lovely flat green field that they chose turned out to be an Irish bog near Clifton in County Galway, and although the wheels dug in, standing their faithful Vimy on its nose, they were both unharmed. After a flight of 15 hours and 57 minutes, they had become heroes, and in addition to winning the Daily Mail prize, the crew received 2,000 guineas, from the Ardath Tobacco Company, and £1,000 from Lawrence Phillips for being the first British subjects to fly across the Atlantic. A few days later, they were both knighted by King George V. As well as flying their aircraft across the ocean, they also carried a small amount of mail. One of the letters was written by Alcock himself to his sister Elsie. It read... My dear Elsie, just a hurried line before I start. This letter will travel with me in the official mailbag, the first mail to be carried over the Atlantic. Love to all, your loving brother, Jack. After the completion of the flight, Vickers rebuilt the Vimy, which is now located in the Science Museum in London. Various original components, however, are found elsewhere. One of the propellers was given to Brown, who hung it in his office for years, before it was given to the RAF College Cranwell. From there it went to the RAF Careers Office in Hoban, but now, apparently, it is used as a ceiling fan 
in Luigi Malone's restaurant in Cork, Ireland. The other was on display in the Transatlantic Terminal 3 at Heathrow, but is now part of a mural in the Brooklands Aircraft Museum. A mere month after Alcock and Brown crawled from their freezing cockpit buried in an Irish bog, the Pullum Pig was also about to enter the history books. Better known as the R-34, the Pig was an airship based at RAF Pullum, which seemed to attract more than her fair share of nicknames being called by her crew, Tiny. She was based on a German Zeppelin L-33, which was captured nearly intact after being brought down on British soil during the First World War. She made her first flight in March 1919 and soon after completed an endurance flight of 56 hours, so it was decided to attempt the first transatlantic return flight under the command of Major George Scott. When he took charge of his new rigid airship at East Fortune in Renfrewshire, Scott had been ordered to prepare for a voyage to the United States of America, and he might have beaten Alcock and Brown to the distinction of making the first non-stop flight, but his craft was damaged during trials which delayed its departure. It was in the early hours of the 2nd of July 1919 when Scott and his crew departed. On board the cramped accommodation was a small crew which included Brigadier General Edward Maitland and Zachary Lansdowne as representatives of the US Navy. William Ballantyne, one of the crew members scheduled to stay behind to save weight, stowed away with the crew's mascot, a small tabby cat called Whoopsie. They emerged late on the first day, too late to be dropped off. Never having been designed as a passenger carrier, Hammocks were slung across the keel walkway and hot food was prepared using a plate welded to an engine exhaust pipe. The R-34 arrived at Mineola on Long Island after 108 hours of flight and with our fuel almost exhausted. As the greeting party had no experience of handling a large airship, Major Pritchard jumped by parachute to instruct them, thereby becoming the first person to ever reach American soil from Europe by air. After eight days, an uneventful return flight was made, which took only 75 hours, but gave the Pullum Pig the honour of being the first aircraft to make a return journey. After a successful career as an airship commander, Scott was aboard the last fateful flight of the R-101, recently covered in a plane tale, that ended in tragedy when the craft struck high ground in a storm over France and was destroyed. Before the flight, Scott had asked a friend to keep an eye on his pregnant wife and described the R-101 as an old rag bag that was never going to make it. The Ortig Prize was a reward offered by a New York hotel owner to the first aviator of an allied country to fly non-stop from New York to Paris. The offer was a substantial $25,000, 
and it gave rise to considerable competition amongst those aircraft designers and pilots who thought it might be possible. The first serious attempt was made by René Fonck, backed by Igor Sikorsky, who built a sleek trimotor biplane for the attempt. Having been fueled the previous night, when the aircraft was weighed before its attempt, the S-35 was found to be 4,000 pounds, that's nearly two metric tons, overweight. Despite this, the crew of four attempted to take off from Roosevelt Field in New York. But as the aircraft accelerated, the landing gear broke and the aircraft plunged down a slope at the end of the runway, bursting into flames. The pilots survived, but their radio operator and engineer both died. Other attempts ended up in disaster when American Legion crashed on a test flight, killing both pilots. Charles Nungesser, a First World War ace who flew in the movie The Dawn Patrol, teamed up with François Colli and took off from Le Bourget Airport near Paris. In their craft, l'USU Blanc, the White Bird, the Levasseur PL-8 biplane, they were sighted heading past Ireland, but they never arrived at their destination. Mystery surrounds their disappearance, but a recently discovered U.S. Coast Guard telegram tells that wreckage of a white aircraft was seen some 200 miles off the coast of New York in August 1927. Finally, a latecomer to the competition, Charles Lindbergh, a previously unheard-of airmail pilot, in his purpose-built Ryan monoplane, the Spirit of St. Louis, got airborne from a wet and muddy Roosevelt field, which is now a shopping mall. He cleared the telephone lines at the end of the runway by about 25 feet. With his right whirlwind radial engine beating steadily, he climbed slowly as he started a flight that was to last 33 and a half hours. Like Alcock and Brown before him, he faced many challenges. At times he was forced to skim the waves, only 10 feet above them and then climbed to get over storm clouds 10,000 feet high. He fought icing and flew blind on his instruments for hours, all while striving to stay awake for the long flight. When he finally saw Le Bourget Airport, he didn't recognise it, because thousands of car lights surrounded the field as the people of Paris came to see his arrival. On landing, a crowd of nearly 150,000 stormed across the airfield, dragging him from the cockpit and carrying him aloft for nearly an hour. His place in history was assured. However, in a speech to the crowd welcoming him, he modestly said that, Alcock and Brown showed me the way. <laughs>